invite you to turn, of course, to John's Gospel. We've been in chapter for seven for a couple of weeks now, and we're, we've seen Jesus move on from his, uh, to this Feast of Booths that his brothers had encouraged him to go to, saying, look, if you want your ministry to be public, um, I... They, why don't you go down and be part of the feast with us? If you're going to do these works, you're going to have a big audience in Jerusalem. Why stay up here in Galilee? But he doesn't go, and he makes it clear why. He says, because it is not his time. And we're going to see that uh, rise up again as we look at verses 25 through 36 in this message entitled, The Eternal Destiny of the Willful Rejector. So there's some sobering interaction that happens at the end of this passage, and you'll see it as we get to it here this morning. So let's read together. John chapter 7, verse 25 through 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not Find me, and where I am, you cannot come. As always, Father, we come to you at this time for your help in understanding the import of these words spoken all all this time ago by your Son, Jesus Christ, in the temple courtyard area. And we see the reaction, the response from various ones who uh, seem confused, Uh, They misunderstand, indeed they're misled, deluded by false or bad teaching or perhaps conflating stories in their scriptures that make it so they don't recognize you you when you came. And so, Lord, we need your help. We have much more than they did back then as we have our complete canon of scripture and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us to help us understand exactly what is being said here and how that affects our lives here today. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so it's autumn time. There's about six more months. He's at the temple. He's in the courtyard area. He's preaching. And any time Jesus opens his mouth and preaches, what happens? People resent him. It's no different here, as you've seen from the text. They're resenting him. They want to arrest him. And so, as always, if he were there handing out bread and fish to thousands of people, there'd be no need to arrest him. It's when he starts speaking. It's the words that he speaks, which is always the case. We're getting close now. We're only six months or so away from the Passover uh, in the spring. And this Passover will require his life. So six months away, he's aware of this time frame, so acutely aware that even when his brothers encourage him to go down to the Feast of Tabernacles, he says, it's not my time. It's not my time. So about halfway through, 
he goes down there and it is his time at least to go participate and to preach at the temple. So the way I have this broken down, because we got a lot to cover here this morning, is in four sections, four sections that I don't have up in the outline for you. We're just going to get to them when we come, but I'll just cite them here for you. So the four we're going to look at, and this took some work to try to get this uh, parceled out into sections that would help us to understand the different people types that are there, the different people and their responses to him, and the dealing with the things that he says that can be sometimes, um, a lot of times enigmatic, but even other times downright cryptic. And so we want to take the time necessary for that. So the first section we're going to look at is the confusion of the misled people. The confusion of the misled people, and that's going to be verse 25 through 29. After that, we will come to verse 30, and that verse alone will help us understand the second point, the absolute certainty of our sovereign God. So we'll look at the confusion of the misled people, and then secondly, from verse 30, the absolute certainty of our sovereign God. Third, from verses 31 and 32, we're going to look at the sincerity of the believer in Christ. So we want to break this down to see the different responses, to see the things that they're saying, the things, those that are confused, those that may understand some truth about who Christ is. The sincerity of the believer in Christ, verse 31 to 32. And then fourth, the eternal destiny of the Christ rejecter. And that's the last part of our text this morning, verse 33 through 36. The eternal destiny of the Christ rejecter. So first of all, the confusion of the misled people. And I say misled because misled means that there was some, they were deluded in some way or even downright deceived by their teachers extant at the time, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, all of the rest of their rabbis and teachers, as we've become very familiar with. Verse 25 says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Isn't this him? So through these verses, 25 to 29, you can see a lot of misdirection, a lot of misunderstanding of what their scriptures that they had at the time, what we call our Old Testament, had to say very clearly about who the Christ would be. In verse 1 of our chapter, chapter 7 here this morning, it says he would go, not go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. It's very clear. We've seen since chapter 5 and verse 18, they want to kill him. The plan is to kill him. And so now they're confused over, well, is this him? He didn't come in with his brothers. We know Jesus. Is that him? That The guy from Nazareth, Nazareth, right? He's, his father is a carpenter. Verse 19 of chapter 7 you remember from last week where Jesus responds with, responds with, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. So why do you seek to kill me? Why are you seeking to kill me when you don't keep the very laws that you say that I'm violating and therefore is worthy of execution? Can you name one? Tell me one law that I violated. He didn't violate one law single mosaic law not one and so he points that out you violate them all the time you've lost in fact the entire spirit of what the law was given for and that's to show you that you don't have any hope of coming to heaven if law keeping is your method it's not going to happen so verse 26 they're still speaking. The crowd is still speaking, the misled, confused people. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. So now there's a, they're confounded, right? Why, if that's the guy that they want to kill, why aren't they saying something? Why aren't they going and talking to him at least? There were temple police. I mean, there were the temple guard. There were plenty of officers there, a captain of the guard and a whole small army of temple guards to keep the peace. Why aren't they, why aren't they arresting him? I thought they wanted to arrest him. And you can just hear the chit-chat and the murmur about who this man is. And he goes on to say in the second half of the verse 26, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? 
Maybe they're not arresting him because they finally get it. Yeah, he's the, he's the Messiah. Is that, is that what's going on here? They're not arresting him. He's speaking openly in the temple. But I thought that's the very guy that they wanted to, to kill. I don't get it. So they're misled. They go from thinking that Jesus was some, some of the religious leaders wanted to kill, concluding, well, if they are trying to kill him, could be that maybe it's because they know that this is the Christ. Don't know. Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. So <laughs> what a conversation, right? It can re- reflect some of our own confusions sometimes. Hmm. This, uh, I mentioned in the first hour, Barbara and I refer to these things as sometimes a speculation vortex. Well, it could be this. No, no, wait a second. But he said that. And oh, well, she's doing this. So maybe it's that. <laughs> we try not to enter in, right? Just let God handle things. And we'll try to refrain from speculating because it can lead to a whole lot of discouragement and a lot of confusion like we can see right here with these confused people that who are obviously subjected to being misled by the teachers at the time. No one will know where he comes from. It says, oh, this is, this is the second part of the verse. So he says, we know where this, man, where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They're, they're wrong on both accounts, aren't they? They're wrong on both. We know where Jesus comes from. He comes from Nazareth, and there's no good thing that can come out of Nazareth, right? So that can't be him, can it? Besides, when the Christ appears, he, nobody's going to know where he came from. It's going to be this big mystery. It's just going to show up. And that's misapplied, misunderstood texts of the Old Testament scriptures. They're cherry-picking certain things out, and they're speculating. But it's speculating badly. That's why we have what uh, the theologians refer to as the analogia scriptura, the analogy of scripture. We let the whole of scripture answer the confusing parts of scripture. The scripture answers itself so that we have clarity. That's why we have what's called systematic theology. We systematize the whole of what the canon of scripture has to say about any given question. They pluck things out. That is the teachers at the time, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, to what's convenient to whatever their ideology is, whatever they want will advance them, whatever will exalt them and allow them to hold their exalted position on the Sanhedrin and so that they can be well thought of. This is a whole, this is a profession of, of theirs, which we were referring to in the first hour again this morning. So they're wrong. They're wrong on where they think he comes from. They're wrong on thinking that actually the scriptures would say that he's just going to appear. He didn't grow up in Nazareth. I mean, he grew up there, but he wasn't born there. You know that. John 6, 42, they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? They were confused back then. A lot of confusion going on. John Seven, ahead of our text now, in verse 41 to 44, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Well, now you're on to something. You should hang on to that because that's actually what it says. The village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. That's Satan's agenda, of course, is to divide the people. And he'll do that by coming to different places and their understanding of Scripture. Does it all the time. So it's continuing to go on here. And as we move forward in chapter 7 and chapter 8, we're going to see the same thing over and over again. Our text says, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, that's not... That's not true. The religious leaders knew exactly where he came from. Matthew's gospel, when King Herod found out that there's going to be this king of the Jews, he gets their leading chief priests and their Pharisees to come and tell him, Where's, where do your scriptures say that he's going to come from? So you can see that in Matthew chapter 2, 4 to 5, where Herod's, it, it, the text says here, and assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, He, that's King Herod, inquired of them, 
where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, and they were accurate, they were true. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they cite Micah 5.2, which they were very well aware of. They knew that he was supposed to come from Bethlehem. They knew these things. That's why I use the word misled. These are, their, their confusion largely comes from having been misled. Why? Why do I say that? Because the teachers know exactly where the Messiah is to come from. And it's not out of ignorance. They, they can find out very easily that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. So... 2 Peter 3, verse 3 and verse 5, regarding the end times, as 2 Peter is talking about uh, the end times, things that will take place as things are concluding. Uh, it says in verse 3 of chapter 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own desires. And it goes on to name some other things that are going to happen in those last days. But the first part of verse 5 says something very telling for our text or what's going on with our confusion here. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Oh, so there's a willfulness to them not holding to the truth. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. One writer said, men's memories are often sadly dependent on their wills. End quote. We choose the memories that we want. That's why I've often said our memories are selective and they're creative. So we select certain things that we, because if we fix our mind not on them and repetitively go to them in our minds from time to time because we savor them, we desire that memory, that's the one that's selected. And then we tend to embellish on them, like some loved one that dies. And so we remember, we want to select those memories and keep them on file. But we tend to over-embellish them, don't we? So much so that, say, for instance, you're, the father that you loved on this earth died and you think about him a lot and you go to some family reunion some years later and you're telling the story about dear old dad and your siblings are looking at you like, he never did that. That's Who are you describing? <laughs> right? So if you can be the favored son or daughter, you're going to embellish that thing. All of that to say that our memories are 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 grabbed a hold of. They're kept on permanent file by our will. The things that we desire to remember. And that's what they're doing here. They're, they're cherry-picking things. They're taking false teachings. They're, they're taking pieces of the truth and, and misapplying it instead of systematizing it and letting the rest of Scripture answer the confusion or, or answer the question that they might have which is always smart to do. Basically, people remember what they want to. That, that's it. I like what J.C. Ryle said on this point. He said, It is a sore spiritual disease and one most painfully common among men. They shut their eyes against the plainest facts and doctrines of Christianity. So true, isn't it? They pretend to say that they do not understand and cannot therefore believe the things that we press on their attention as needful to salvation. But alas, in 19 cases out of 20, it is willful ignorance. They do not believe what they do not like to believe. I'm not going to embrace that because that would affect my lifestyle. I'm going to reject that. I'm going to find a, a different theological explanation for that. And so those are typically the teachers and preachers that grow in favor their constituencies grow almost like a tumor because it's the desires of their flesh. It's what they want to believe. He goes on, they will neither read nor listen nor search nor think nor inquire honestly about the truth, end quote. The people that argue most against our faith uh, on a street corner in the marketplace of ideas, ask them this one question. They're disagreeing vehement, adamantly against something that you've held to and that you tell them that. And they here's, they're just absolutely, no, that's absolutely false and wrong. And he asks them this one question. Have you ever read the Bible? 
Typically, it's, well, no, but <laughs> it's a whole host of other reasons that they give you that why you're wrong. It's like, look, I've made this a source of study for not just years, but decades. Here's, here's what it says, faithfully. I mean, you can check me on that. Be a good Berean, check me on that. Who, who are the Bereans? Yeah, never mind. And the religious leaders offered no help to clarify. That's their job. It's the job of leadership in the church to clarify questions where there's confusion, where somebody's been led, misled. They've been in a previous church experience, and they, God blesses them by bringing conviction to them that perhaps they've been under some bad teaching or maybe not complete or comprehensive teaching, and they want to study the whole counsel of God. And so they should be able to go to leadership and have questions answered and have confusions clarified. Because we all have them, if we're honest. There's a phrase that you probably heard in the past. It's a phrase that's been around since 1546, and it's had a a number of iterations. 1546 by a man named John Haywood. Now you'll remember the first part. There are none so blind as... No. No, you'd think that. Because if they cannot see, they're pretty blind. The statement is, there are none so blind as those who will not see. They're blinder than people who cannot see. Physically, they're blind. These people are blind. They're even more blind because they're blind to the truth. And it's a willful choosing. By their will, they're not going to listen to it anymore. They're just not going to believe it. They're not going to embrace it. But I don't know if you've heard the second half. It actually, the, the full uh, quotation is, there are none so blind as those who will not see. The most deluded people are those who choose to ignore what they already know. Wow. End quote. Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. I am not the carpenter named Joseph's progeny. Okay, I, he, That's why several times, if you remember on our journey through chapter 6 and into chapter 7, I come from where? Above. I come from above. I'm the bread of life who has come down from above. He says it over and over again. That's why the Pharisees, who know exactly what he's saying, my will is not my own. My will is the one who gave it to me. The Father gave it to me. They know what he means by that. You're saying you're the Son of God? That's why they want to kill him. It's his words that are bothering them. So he says, I have not come of my own accord. He who is sent me is true, and him you do not know. This expression, Jesus proclaimed, is a very, very strong Greek expression. It's used four times in the Gospels. He's, it's like a strong outward cry, and there's only one place where there's a stronger word used, and that's when he's being crucified on the cross. So he's crying out to them, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. Uh, you Listen, he's 100% human as well as 100% divine, right? So I imagine that sometimes could we forgive him if he's starting to get a little bit tired of having to say the same things over and over again, only to be met by people's contempt and resentment. I don't want to hear it anymore. Remember when all of them walked away in chapter 6, verse 66? Many of his disciples, his disciples, his followers, we're tired of hearing this. We don't want to hear it anymore. So now here he is in the temple. You know what he did earlier when he went down to the temple? He fashioned a whip, dumped over the money changers' tables, and cleared out the temple because they made it a place of, of commerce. And it's his father's house. It's his father's house. In chapter 8, verse 19, he, he says, You know neither me nor my father. You don't know the father. If, if you knew the father, you would know that the words that I speak coming from him are true. 
but I speak them and you want to kill me. Why? What crime have I committed? Show me the Mosaic law. Verse 29, I know him, for I come from him. This is going to stir them up. And he sent me. In chapter 8, verse 43 to 47, he says this. Why do you, the, the repetition really strikes you after a while. He says things over and over again, and they keep rejecting it. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. There he's indicting them. Verse 44, for you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? He asks it again. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So maybe we can understand why they really resent him to the point of wanting him to be quiet, even silencing him themselves. They're waiting for their moment. And actually, they're just playing into the preordained plan of God the Father onto when he would finally give his life, right? So second point from verse 30. This is wonderful. We've, saw, we've seen this again, the Father's timing. This is the absolute certainty of our sovereign God. They can't lay hands on him if it isn't time. If it is time, they're going to lay hands. Which, by the way, points out to the willfulness of Jesus. He knows that that time's coming. Instead of resisting it, he yields himself to it because it has to happen. That's our gospel. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It doesn't say no one laid a hand on him because... He had a lot of big fishermen friends surrounding him. They didn't lay a hand on him because he was off hiding somewhere. They didn't lay a hand on him because it's against the law for them to do that. And they'd be, the temple guard wouldn't do that, wouldn't disobey the law. No, none of those things or a host of other excuses. It's just not his time. It's not his time. This is divine sovereignty. This is the power of God to ordain that actual moment when the Christ would give his sacrifice. It says they were seeking to arrest him. They were seeking that. They've had enough of his truth. They don't want to hear it anymore. They have to shut him down, but they fail. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. More clear evidence of the sovereignty of of God. He is God, of course, is one of his names, one of his descriptive names is El Olam, which is everlasting God. It speaks to his eternality. He's outside of time. He created time. He set us in that as a context. He's outside of that. It's an invented thing. He's always been and he forever will be. That's our God. That's our God. But we're subject to it. And so you ha we have to read things like this. His hour didn't come or the day hasn't come because that's the way in which we understand our context existentially. We have clocks. It's not time yet. It's not the right day yet. So it's explained for us. But with God, as we mentioned in the first hour, a day is what? A thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, time is meaningless. He's outside of it. He, he tends to this portion of time from the first man, Adam, to the last man before earth is burned up. In Second uh, Timothy, there's a great expression here that makes that point. Second Timothy chapter 1 second half of verse 8 and then verse 9. And this is in the New King James, and I'll explain why I'm reading that version. The gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, 
which was given to us in Christ Jesus, when? In the New King James, before time began. God started the clock at some point. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, Galatians 4, 4 says. Everything is on a perfect schedule, perfectly divine, divinely ordained schedule. So before time began, pro chrono, I am from all eternity is the NAS. And I think that's the poorest translation. The ESV says before the ages began. Literally, it's before time eternal. So eternally, God knew these things, but they had to happen when he started the clock. Man would fall, and then all of the rest would happen, and then Christ would come in the fullness of time, and that was 2,000 years ago, but see, we measure things by time, don't we? And then he'll come back at a certain day and a time. That's how we understand things. Well, before time even began, he set us apart in Christ. One theologian said, before times marked by the lapse of unnumbered ages, before that started, before the ages would begin to lapse from eternity, that of which no end is conceived. So you've got eternity, which has no beginning or end, and then you have time itself, which has a beginning. So this is before time began, we're set apart. Barnes says that is which he intended to give us, for it was not then actually given. The thing was so certain in the divine purposes that it might be said to be already done. So he ordained these things from eternity past, and then he had to create a time frame in which he would accomplish what he's always promised from before the ages, as Titus 1 puts it. Titus 1, 1 to 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Isn't that wonderful? So before he even started the clock, this promise was in play for how long? Eternally. Eternally. There's no measurement of time on that. So here's the point. This is why I belabor this. So no matter how powerful or great in number those that come against Christ, if the entire temple guard came at him and it wasn't his hour, they would not be able to lay a hand on him. This, is, this happens more than once, right? In your understanding of the life of Christ, they try to arrest him and suddenly he disappears. They just can't lay a hand on him. Well, the same is true for you and I. That's, that's the take-home point for us here today. We, as the uh, uh, 19th century Scottish uh, missionary to the New Hebrides, the place where they were doing cannibalism, he was warned, don't go there, you'll get eaten. <laughs> well, he went anyway. Tragic story, met with tragedy after tragedy. His wife died, had just given birth to his son. Short time after that, his son died. He had to guard the graves so they wouldn't dig them up. It just, you should read his biography sometime. It's really quite moving. Well, he's the one that says, we are immortal until our work here is done. You're immortal. You're immortal. So Psalm 31, verse 14 and 15. You'll see this now in different places. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. You see? Nothing can happen to you without it being found in the eternal purview of the decretive will of a sovereign God. That's it. Nothing. And yet we fret and fuss over something that's happening to us as though it didn't end around with God. No, it didn't catch him off guard. That's his appointment for you. It's about stewardship. It's about responses. How am I going to respond to what this guy's doing or what's happened at work or what, what happened with my child or this sickness or I lost my job? 
If you don't have this doctrine tucked away in a deep and safe place in your heart, you will be frustrated. You will be paralyzed with fear at times. You'll be disappointed. You'll be discouraged, sometimes to the point of depression. If you don't recognize that this is the absolute certainty of a sovereign God in your life and mine. Absolutely critical to understand. Verse 6 of John 7, you remember? Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Remember that? In chapter 12, going forward, verse 27 to 28. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour, this moment, it's time. He prays in the garden, fervently prays till his sweat is soaked with his own blood coming out of his pores. Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, what? Not my will, but thine be done. God has a sovereign will even for the Son of God as he fulfills the purposes of God as Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is such a needed doctrine and yet so neglected and so not understood in the body of Christ. And so you see people that define themselves as Christians suffering as though, and you want it to, you're thinking to yourself, I, I want to help you. I'm grieving that you're so, so utterly upset and so caught off guard. Where is your God? Maybe better asked, who is your God? See, my God is sovereign. This is my God. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. If you see a Christian man or woman who is just unwavering when things come at them, they're holding to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That's Why do you think this doctrine gets picked on so much? Man, of all of the doctrines, of all of the... Uh, attributes, the, the, you remember when we started the do, teaching on the attributes of God? You remember what, was it uh, Luther said? This is the most hated. Why? Because we want to be God. I want to make my own decisions unilaterally apart from anybody, you know, influencing me. And yet even Jesus submitted himself perfectly. John chapter 13, verse 1. This is the foot washing just before he would go to the cross. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, his hour had come. He knows that his hour has come. And verse 1 of chapter 17, this is the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father. He opens with this, Father, the hour has come. He's acknowledging as the Son to the Father, I recognize, Father, the hour has come. This is right on the doorstep of him being sacrificed. So he gets it. And I, I think I left John Patton's quotation in there for you in, your, in the outline because I, I think it's so good. You are immortal until God's done with you. Live that way, that's all. Live that way. Live the way that you would if you actually fully, wholeheartedly, 100% believe that. And if our hour comes, it comes. There isn't a, a sickness. There isn't a, a lost job, a lost life. There isn't an accident. That's a misnomer, by the way. It's no accident. Either that or God was asleep. Or God didn't care enough. That's even worse. How can you say that? Where was God on 9-11? He was there holding up that building so thousands could get out. Every single soul by His divine appointment got out. Why aren't we praising Him for that? I watched those buildings just like you did. And I'm thinking, how are they standing at all? God's own hands, scorched, blood-stained hands are holding them up. Amazing, amazing. And yet we focus on, and it's tragic. 
real close to the same number we lost December 7th, 1941, right? In Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Close to 3,000 people in both. I don't diminish that. But I say, look, if, if we don't understand the application of God's sovereignty in these things, we'll lose our minds. We'll, we'll, we'll descend into discouragement. Listen, this is a crazy place. If we don't embrace this as Jesus fully did, 100%, never a moment where he didn't. And the sovereignty of God the Father fulfilling his plan down to the day and the hour. Third, the sincerity of the believer in Christ. And we like this because there's always going to be those among those that are confused, those are rejecting him, those that really are just like in a perpetual conundrum, scratching their heads. I don't really know. And they're too apathetic to really have their question answered, to dig deep and find out. Well, or they're going to these Pharisees and scribes and they're being misled, right? Verse 31 and 32. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. Well, that's good. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? That's why I was going to I was going to entitle this this point the simple sincerity of the believer in Christ because belief is actually very simple and it's reasonable. You remember reasons to believe the sermon last week? He was reasoning with them. Our faith is not an unreasonable. It's not a jump in a dark chasm. That's not faith. It's a reasonable faith. Jesus was reasoning. Paul was reasoning. And there's reasoning here. Who in the world could do more works than this man Jesus has done? I don't know anybody. Thousands and thousands of people fed with a little basket of fish and, and bread? How does, how does that happen? How do you make a man who was lame for 38 years, you look at him and you say, get up and walk. Whoa, I, that guy sounds cruel, doesn't he? He's been lame for 38 years. Are you mocking him? No, he, he needs to get up and walk. And he stands up and walk. And what does the religious leaders focus on? What did they focus on? Oh, you did this on the Sabbath. That's a work on the Sabbath. That's the legalist, right? Wow. Wow. They're just reasoning. This must be him. Look what he's done. Look what he continues to do. He's healing people across the land. We've never seen so much clear-cut healing across all the way up to the Syrophoenician woman up by Tyre and Sidon to the north, all the way down into the depths of Judea. He's healing all over the place. He's feeding people. Is that why you want to kill him? Oh, we know better than that now. So these people have the integrity to just admit it that the works of Jesus couldn't possibly be matched or excelled by anyone else. And we know that when Messiah comes, he's going to be able to do these things. Jesus says, if you don't believe my words, in another place he says this, you recall, if you don't believe my words, believe what? The works, because they're the works of the Father. I couldn't do this apart from the Father's will. Believe those works. If you reject my words, believe the works, because if you believe in the works, you'll have to accept the words. That's the way this works. That's what faith is. He must be the Messiah. Going back in John, where in chapter 3 we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. Do you remember what he said? This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. John chapter 3, verse 2. He came by night. Now this is, he's the teacher of Israel. Jesus points that out. Definite article. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? You don't have a copy of Ezekiel? You don't have a copy of Jeremiah? You should know that a person needs to be born from above. You should get that. But he doesn't. So Jesus respectfully responds to him. But he goes on. He says, Nicodemus asks, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And listen to this. This is to our point this morning. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. End of story, right? That's just it. John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. 
for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me. Wonderful song we sang this morning, wasn't it? I bear witness. He bears witness to the Father. He bears witness to the extant God, to the living God, the God who has come to send a Savior to fulfill the works of God, that God might be glorified in all that he does on his behalf for his glory and for the sake of mankind. You reject him? You want to kill him? The works bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Chapter 10, when we get there, Lord willing, verse 37 to 39, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. There it is. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Do you think they liked hearing that? Just a sidebar. Verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. They can't get him because it's not his time. Do you think the Father, do you think God frets over their attempts to arrest him? He doesn't fret over anything. He knows exactly when it will happen, when they will be able to arrest him in the garden. Jesus even knows it. They ask him who he is, and he he's, says, I am, and what happens? They fall over like bowling pins. I am, the ego am I. I am that I am. He's the I am, the Jehovah God. Wow. Amazing. So he escaped again. Acts 2.22. So now we go into the apostles. We're out of the Gospels. And what does Peter preach in chapter 22 of Acts 2? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. That's what he said in 10. These are the works of the Father. God is doing this work through him in your midst as you yourselves know. There's no getting around it. You know this because you, you have in your scriptures what we should have expected and that's exactly what you see happening before you right now. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent offers, officers, here we go, to arrest him. They're overwhelmed with fear. They're overwhelmed with jealousy. They're paralyzed. They're gripped. They're, they're twisted inside themselves with jealousy because they had the favor of the people. They were the, they were the teachers. They were the exalted ones. And so the rest attempt fails. F finally, in... Num on number four, the eternal destiny of the Christ rejecter. Now, this is sobering here, folks, so buckle up. Verse 33 to 36. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't be able to find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Chapter 8 is going to repeat the essentially, but... Offer us a little more for our understanding. Chapter 8, verse 21 to 22. He said to them again, underline again, because we just read where he's saying it in chapter 7, he's saying it again in chapter 8. Why? Because he wants to beat them over the head with it? Why is he saying it again? He's pleading with them. He loves them. He says again, I am going away and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. That's an added element. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, 
Will he kill himself? Look at this confusion. That is just all the way through. Chapter 7 and chapter 8. They're still at it. Wrong. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you, and this is the key word, believe that I am he, that is Messiah, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? By now? Really? That's an insincere question. I'm just going to say it straight out. You got to ask him who he is now? Wow. Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. What patience, what grace. Amazing grace. These, but he doesn't hold back on these bold faced words, does he? You will die in your sins. That's true of every fallen human being on the planet. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am the Savior that has come to pay the penalty for your sin, that you might have eternal life. It has, the words have a chillingly prophetic sense to them, don't they? God's given mankind a relatively short period of time to confess his sin and seek refuge in Christ. You know not the day or the hour when your life will be required from you. And then you'll stand before him. And what's chilling about this is then it's too late. And you don't know when that time will come. He knew the day and the hour of his own execution. We don't know ours. And yet, so many drag their feet. You remember the parable of the ten virgins? Right? There were two that, that had plenty of oil to last them. and or There were five, rather, that had plenty of oil to last them for their lamps to stay lit until the bridegroom came for them. And then they had the feast and the, the, the whole rest of the story. This is in Matthew 25, verse 11, second half to verse 13. The other virgins they, that didn't take enough of the oil for their lamps. The lamps are going out. They're saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. They're banging on the door. He's already closed it. The other virgins that are in, the, the rest of uh, whoever else is, is in. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then this, watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. We don't know. We don't know. Eternal separation from God in everlasting, agonizing torment for eternity. That's hell. The Bible makes that very, very clear. This ought to ramp up our urgency to share the gospel, those we care about, those that God gives us an intersection with, because we don't know how much time we have, nor that they would have. There's people that wait too long. And, and they're going to hear that. Depart from me, I what? I never knew you. That's why he keeps repeating things. That's why he keeps saying that the same things over and over again. Before that hour comes, I want to make sure you all understand just exactly who I am and why I came because God is a wrathful God. There will be a day of judgment. You don't want to be too late to make this decision. Proverbs 128 says, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. You will seek me, in verse 34, but, and you will not find me. They're going to come pounding on the door. 
Just like the ones with the lamps that not enough oil beating on the door. Let me in. It's going to be a horrible moment. A horrible time. And he'll say, I don't know you. I don't know you. Charles Bridges says this. The Savior calls. He calls by word, by his word. He calls by his providence. He calls by his ministers. He calls by conscience. Your conscience shows you this is right. I know something's wrong with me. Okay, I get it because I know my thought life and I'm just thankful that most of you don't know the thoughts that I have. That alone would convict me. You don't even have to go to the things I've actually committed which would keep me in hell itself. You've got so many opportunities to recognize your need for Christ. He goes on, but you refused. Not till his calls have been refused does he thunder forth his warnings. But such grace, so rich and free, yet rejected? Who can take the magnitude of this guilt? O oh, sinner, the day cometh when he who once yearned and wept and prayed and died will have no pity. They would not listen to my warnings. I will not listen to their cries. End of quote. That's it. It's over. Friends, how tragic. Do not presume upon his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his mercy, or its his grace, you'll find yourself face to face one day if you haven't rec reconciled with him and him saying, depart from me. I don't know who you are. Listen to how it was put by Moses in Deuteronomy 29, 18 to 20. This is even stronger. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle in upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Friends, this is just th three verses from God's servant Moses. This is God speaking through his chosen instrument. Will we hear? Remember, Hebrews says that Esau sought after forgiveness. It was too late. He didn't get it. We think we have plenty of time. The siren song of Satan is you got plenty of time. The pride says, oh, I don't need to turn myself in yet. You think I want to live like those Christians do? Wow. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you've been deluded by. You talk about misled. You talk about deluded. You talk about living a delusion. These words, these words will pierce and they'll either convict, send to the cross or they'll turn that person against and resent and object and have contempt for those words. It's polemical. It's polarizing. It's going to be one or the other for faithful. There's no middle ground. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27, 29 and 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How much worse punishment, verse 29, do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But let's 
Let's end with some good news, shall we? Because Jesus asks, actually makes these, a similar statement that he made here in our text. You will seek me, you will not find me. For where I am, you cannot come. Do you recognize that in the New Testament, in the Gospels? It's after the, the Last Supper. It's after the foot washing. It's when Judas, he gets recognized. Go, and what you're going to do, do quickly. So he's on his way to being arrested and crucified. And so he says in verse 33, Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me. And just that I, and even references our text, even as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So where's the good news there? There's a difference. This is the only place Jesus uses that tender, loving appellation, little children. Little children, these belong to him. Okay, so that's a difference because he doesn't say that to our to the Jewish folks in our in our text. What's the difference? Oh, there's something else missing from John thirteen that's in thirty four of our text, because I'm reading thirty four of our text that says you will seek me and you will not find me. That's missing. That's missing. Well, but he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Yes, you cannot come to the cross. You cannot hang on the cross. You cannot be put in the, in the tomb. You will not rise then. I need to go. The time is short. I'm about to go. My betrayer is at hand. I'm going to the cross. You can't come there. I will go. He's the archagon. He's the captain, the author of our salvation, as Hebrews puts it. I will blaze that trail. You can't come. You can't stand the horrors of death, the wrath that's about to be poured out on me. But I will. I will do it for them, my little children, because I love them. You cannot come. But he does not say, you will not find me. Because we will. How do we know that? Listen. It, I thought of these and I'm like, okay, I want this to be true. How does this happen? John 6, we covered it, verse 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day last day but you cannot come i must do the work it's the work of my father to the glory of god alone but i will come for you little children i'm going to be gone in a short period of time a little time and i am not with you anymore and you will seek me where is he they end up getting scattered don't they you won't find me he's not in the text you can't come where i'm going So let's be comforted with John 14, verse 1 through 4. Now listen to this for the first time. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. I've made that clear. You know the way to the cross. Find yourself there. Believe in me. I live and I live for your sake. The tomb is empty. I had to go somewhere, little children. You know where I had to go? I had to go be with the Father and prepare a place for you because where I am, there you will be also because you believe in me. That's all? That's all it costs? Yeah. That's it. And yet, 
people will deny and people will resist and resent. I'll finish with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, yet you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Praise God. Praise him now. And if there was any question in your heart, settle it now. That's all you have to do. That's all I have to do. Father, thank you. Thank you. It's hardly enough, but it's all we have. Look into our hearts, O Lord, and see the gratitude that we have. See the love that we have for you as you've allowed us to see you. Through your word, illuminated by your spirit, we understand now. And we cry out to you and we say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me a sinner. And in that moment, we find forgiveness. We find everlasting life. That's the promise that was made even before time began. So Lord, may we live this way, grateful that the living Christ dwells in us and among us. That is your choice, your desire. Our sin had spoiled that, Lord. But now in Christ, we have the opportunity to be closer to you than ever. And Lord, you will see us through to that day, our own appointment. For we know not the day or the hour of your appointment for us, but you do. And you will carry us across in death. And we will be alive for eternity in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.